Welcome to the Push Through Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Reeves. I'm a licensed professional counselor here in Atlanta, Georgia, with a private practice where I specialize in working with women as well as maternal mental health. Here on the podcast, we'll be discussing all things childhood, womanhood, and motherhood, and everything in between. I'll be interviewing various women who will be sharing their birth stories as well as others who will be providing tips to help us be able to navigate this crazy world that we live in. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a quick chat with me. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. This is technically our first episode for season two and let's catch up because there's so much to catch up on. Um, I don't even know where to begin and I'm just gonna give a disclaimer. I didn't write, did not write any notes of how I wanted this episode to go. I mean, like, I, I know how I want it to go, but I didn't, like, have a particular order or format. And typically in my episodes, I'm pretty objective about opinions about things. Um, kind of like even when we did the conscious parenting episode and I, you know, didn't say any type of parenting style was right or wrong or whatever the case may be. Um, I'm just always open as far as like sharing information and letting people do whatever they feel is best for them. And that's pretty much my personality. I'm all about letting people live their lives and me not trying to impose my opinion. Um, but I'm going to talk about my fourth trimester because I am out of it. Um, July 1st marked three months for Ellis. And so I'm on the other side. But my fourth trimester had a lot going on in the world. And if you remember from the episode about what is postpartum depression, and I talked about how several women experience it, not just because of hormonal imbalances, but because of environmental factors that are going on. And I did not have any type of perinatal mood or anxiety disorder during this um, postpartum period, fortunately. Um, However, there was just so much going on in the world environmentally that definitely affected my experience, and I wanted to talk about that today. So that's what we're going to be catching up on. Um, Not only was I having a baby during the period of COVID, but we pretty much had some resemblance of a civil rights movement um, on top of several killings and deaths and we're in a election year and there's just like so much going on and so much that is heavy and life is just very different now than what I would have expected it to be like after having a baby and things haven't really changed or become anything different and it's just a lot to process and wrap my mind around. So I'm going to take you through everything from the beginning because We haven't talked about what it was like with my pregnancy towards the end and giving birth and just everything. So I'm going to take you from the beginning and bring you back to the present um, and where I'm at today. So it was the week of March 11th. And prior to that, my doctor had basically said it was pretty much that week, the week of March 11th. 
my doctor had told me that COVID numbers were increasing and I was a part of the vulnerable population because I was pregnant and several people were not taking the virus seriously. And in the event that I was to get Corona um, upon me giving birth to my son, I was going to have to be quarantined from him and basically give birth to him and he would be taken away from me and I wouldn't see him for 14 plus days. And she said that the only thing that I was going to be able to do was go to my doctor's appointments and go home. She asked me about work um, because work is a tricky thing to work around for people. But fortunately, being that I'm a therapist and telemed was something that I was implementing already, um, I was able to just see my clients online from that point on and not have to go into the office. So starting there, I was beginning to self-isolate. And this was somewhat of a good time because I'd already had the baby moon. We had had the birthing way. I'd had the um, sprinkle, all the social gatherings in celebration. Um, so there was really nothing that I had going on anyway, because I was only going to be doing two more weeks of work and seeing clients. And then I was going to be chilling for two weeks before his due date anyway. Um, so I was like, well, the, you know, perfect timing, I guess. Um, what I did think that life was going to be like before Ellis was going to be here in those two weeks before he got here when I was going to be home, I thought that I was going to be able to tie up some administrative work um, with work, like some notes, um, just catch up on some things. And I was going to be able to tidy up the house, clean, relax, sleep, take naps, watch movies. But the school that my son went to closed that Monday. Um, so everything kind of like amped up that week and it was like, boom, 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 everything shutting down. And I was like, well, you know, that's fine. I was going to be at home anyway. And I, I have to say this, and I have to point this out that I'm in a very privileged and grateful situation because I understand the difficulty for a lot of mothers who did not have the flexibility of a job where they could just say, okay, fine. I can just be home. My kid is going to be home. Um, Financially, I'm still straight. So I understand that I'm, I'm just blessed, definitely. Income didn't change for us. My husband, he works in the medical field and he is in a job where he is definitely exposed to people. Um, he's a pharmacist. So there's people coming up to the pharmacy every day that are sick trying to get their prescriptions filled. So we had to come up with a plan for him to be able to just strip down in the garage, take off his shoes, immediately go take a shower before he could interact with us at all. And even still, that was still like a risk because at the beginning of COVID, we really didn't know much information. Rather, it was on the surface, rather it was on the clothes, rather it was in the air. Um, so... But there was nothing else that we could do, you know, from it. I couldn't move. My doctor is up here in Atlanta. He has to work. There's nowhere else for him to go. Um, so we just kind of crossed our fingers and hoped that we were taking the best precautions that we could for our family. So I'm at home for two weeks with Ezra. And I was able to reframe it and not think of it as like, dang, I thought I was going to be home and be able to do all of this stuff. But in... In retrospect, I was grateful for that time because I was able to spend time with him because this was the last time he was going to be the only child. And it was fun. 
Um, I did some homeschooling. We were able to keep it up with alphabets, numbers, play games, do outside time, take walks. Um, we would watch movies at night in bed together and like eat and we, we enjoyed ourselves. We had a good time. Towards the end, I felt very exhausted. My body felt like it weighed a ton. <laughs> I don't know what my final weight was, but I think I got up to like 217. And my pre-pregnancy weight was 175-ish, maybe like 178. Um, so it was around like 30-something pounds, I think. I'm not good at math. Um, but... Uh, in that third trimester, I remember telling my doctor that I just felt like he could just fall out of my body, like at any moment. And my pelvic pain was really low. And she was basically saying that your body has already given birth before, so it knows what to do. So it's already fallen into places as it should. And so you feel a lot of ligament pain, back pain, I had a lot of lower back pain, so that's why I had started going to the massage therapist months before um, to just kind of make myself feel better. I started taking tub baths, just anything to just help me physically feel better because some days it was hard with having a toddler, having the energy, being able to bathe him, going up and down the stairs, trying to do something with the house and keep it clean because people couldn't come over. I couldn't have anybody come help me. So I was just trying to do the best that I can and not live in squalor, basically. Um, so it was about a week before the due date, maybe like two weeks before the due date. Um, I started to get Braxton Hicks really bad. And it would just be this extreme pain, lightning pain from my back all around up into my stomach. And some days it would last for hours and then it would go away. I would get the tightness of my stomach where my stomach would come like rock hard and it would feel like this lightning pain shooting down to my vagina. Um, excruciating pain, but not the pain that's similar to childbirth. It felt like having really bad pregnancy cramps and not pregnancy period cramps. Um, so I would just kind of get through it, um, know that everything was kind of setting up and I was just anticipating him to come. So I started getting everything together in the house, um, having his nursery set up, getting bottles set up, just preparing because I felt like he could come any day. And I was pretty adamant that he was going to come before the due date. He was due April 6th. And the last week of March, it was about daily. I was starting to feel the pains, excruciating pains. Didn't know if I was dilating. And another thing that I felt was really strange was people often talk about your water break and you will know it. And I kept saying, how do you know if your water breaks? Because it's not how it is on the movies for everybody. It's not like you're just walking around and then this gush or flood of water just kind of falls out of you. And it's like, it's time. And you just hop in a taxi and fly to the hospital. I didn't have my water break with Ezra. They had to break my water for me at the hospital. And a side effect of pregnancy a lot of times for women is that you are you have a lot of discharge. You're moist often. 
And so it's hard to decipher between is this just a normal discharge or has my water broken? And I had to wear a panty liner <laughs> because TMI, because I couldn't just walk around here, you know, with wet panties all day. <laughs> um, so I had to put something on, but I didn't know by putting something on if it was making me not know if it had broken or not, if that makes sense. Um, so I was trying to monitor it the best of my ability every day because I had a fear that my water would have broken and I wouldn't know it and I would have just continued to be at home. And if you go so many hours not going to the hospital after your water has broken, you are at risk of having an infection because you're kind of just open and the baby's out of the sag and they're just kind of chilling or whatever. So it was the day before April 1st, I had had contractions what I felt like around the clock but they weren't five minutes apart they don't want you to come to the hospital until they are five minutes apart so they were erratic seven minutes here 10 minutes there 15 minutes there but it was strong enough pain where it was hard to sleep it would wake me up um I told my husband and kind of put him on alert we were putting everybody into place the plan was for my brother to come to the house stay with my oldest until my mother could come up from South Georgia and then stay with him until we got out of the hospital. And another thing that I was grateful for was that my husband was able to come to the hospital with me as my support person because as you saw in New York, um, women did not have that opportunity because the cases were so high in New York. They had to just do it by themselves. And I can't imagine doing that by yourself especially if you're a first-time mother, because so much goes on. Um, there's so many quick decisions being made. There's so much information being funneled to you that you can't really even process because you're going through so much pain that you need that support person to be there to advocate for you, to be a support to you, to coach you through it. And my heart goes out to the women that had to do that alone because that is very, very difficult. So it was the morning of April 1st, we're getting up as normal, the contractions start coming in, they're like hitting, and they're still not right on five minutes apart, but the pain is excruciating when it comes. And, it, and the best way that I can describe it for anyone who hasn't given birth yet is it's like riding a wave. <clears throat> and it's like a wave comes up and that's what the contraction is like, and then the wave goes down. And then you feel completely normal, like yourself. And then the wave comes up, and the pain is excruciating. And then the wave goes down, and you feel completely normal. That's what it's like. And so in between those waves going up, I was still not having the five minutes apart. And so I didn't know, like, should I call the doctor? Should I not? Should I just ride this out? You know, I don't know what to do. And so I got into the shower and I couldn't tell, it felt like I was peeing on myself, but I couldn't tell if it was me peeing on myself or if it was the shower, because I'm in the shower, you know? And so I told my husband, I said, I think it broke, but I'm not sure. And it wasn't like a, a gush. It was like a, just like a slow stream, but I couldn't tell if it was mine or the water from the shower. But something instinctly said it might have been that my water broke. So 
Um, he's getting our, our son together and he's like, we're just going to go to the hospital. Like, we're just, we're just going to go. And if they turn us around, they turn us around, but you look miserable. Like I was on the floor on all fours. The pain was so bad. So I call the doctor. I tell them, um, I'm not five minutes apart, but I think my water has broken. And so they said, go ahead and come on in to the hospital. So we dropped my son off at my brother's, head to Dunwoody. And we even stopped at McDonald's and I got a McGriddle. And I'm like laughing, giggling, you know, in between. And then the contractions will come and I'll have to breathe it through because it was bad and then it'll go away. And then we're just laughing and we're riding out. So we get to the hospital and I delivered at Northside Hospital. And I remember like thinking it was just quiet. Um, there's people greeting you at the front door. They're all masked, face masks, gloves on, suits on, taking my temperature, takes his temperature, ask us questions about any symptoms we've had. Um, and then they let us go through. And uh, we check in and um, fill out all the paperwork. My husband goes, moves the car. When he comes back, he has to go through the whole thing again, taking temperature, answering the questionnaire. And then he's able to come back and we go back to a room. This is around about 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. Um, we get a room, meet the nurse. And I remember something interesting was we turn on the television and it's on gun smoke. I don't know if you've ever watched that before, but it's an old, old black and white Western. The only reason I know about it is because when I used to go to my grandparents' house, they used to have it on all the time. And I, I don't know if it was like Nick at night or Nick after hours, or if it was like the family channel, if you remember that station. But it would just be like Gunsmoke would come on, Bonanza would come on, Andrew Griffith would come on, just all your old shows. And it was on that rotation when we got to the hospital. Now the irony about that is my son's middle name is Sonny. So we named him Ellis Sonny. Um, and the thing about that is Sonny is the name that's after my grandfather. My grandfather's actual name is Lee. I talked about this in the first episode. But Sonny was his nickname. And I remember when we used when I used to go over there to visit, we would sit down, we would watch these Western shows on television. And and I would just get like into it. And I was only like seven, eight years old, but they would just be like on all day. And they would seem like the longest episode, like an episode felt like it was like three hours long, but I'm sure it was just like 30 minutes. And so I remember the nurse saying like, if you want to turn a television, you can. But I didn't want to because it just felt like there was some sort of like connection in the fact that this was on at the time that I'm giving birth to my son, whom I'm naming after my grandfather. And I had had some nervousness about going to the hospital because of COVID. So I'm a black woman and the whole mortality rate for black women giving birth is already one thing. And then you are a woman who's giving birth during COVID. That's a whole other thing on top of just normal anxiety about giving birth. Another fear that I always have is about the umbilical cord wrapping around my baby's neck, which is pretty common. It happens frequently, um, but usually a baby will just break out of it. So just like normal concern, 
I texted one of my good friends about it and she sent me a text that was a prayer saying that everything was going to be fine. Um, but I just felt like I could breathe and like feel like everything was okay because these Westerns were playing at the exact time that I was in the room and I'm giving birth to this child. So the doctor um, comes in. It was actually the doctor that I wanted to be on call in the event my doctor didn't wasn't on call. I have like three doctors that I felt comfortable with out of the whole practice. He was one of them. And so they checked my cervix. I was not dilated at all. Um, so my water had broke. They confirmed it. But there was no dilation. So we had to come up with the plan. And so I'm still riding the wave of contractions as he's talking to me now. So keep this in mind. And he says, so what we're going to do is we're going to put a suppository in your vagina. He referred to it as a balloon. And that is going to help you start to dilate. We have to keep it in there for 12 hours. And so it'll be about midnight. We'll take it out. And then we're going to give you Pitocin which is a drug um, that helps bring on labor. And Pitocin will stay in in about 8 a.m. in the morning. You'll go into active labor and be ready to deliver. And the doctor on call in the morning will be the person who will deliver your baby. So I said, okay. He said it just like black and white, you know, makes sense, you know, fine. So my nurse comes back into the room. She had missed this conversation because she was elsewhere. And she was saying, did he explain to you what it feels like to have this suppository put in you? And I said, no. And she said, well, you know, I saw how painful it was for you for me to check your cervix, which for people who don't know, when they check your cervix, they stick their fingers up there to see how dilated you are. And you would think it wouldn't be as painful because we get pap smears. Excruciating pain. Okay. Okay. Is basically feels like they're putting their entire arm up your vagina. <laughs> it's excruciatingly painful the more and more further you get along in your pregnancy. So she said, now when I stick this suppository up there, I'm just checking your cervix on a norm. But when I put this suppository up there, I'm going to have to put it past your cervix. So I just want you to think about that. And then also, sometimes when people get the suppository, the suppository itself will, can make you go into labor. So keep that also into mind. So I was grateful for her to be able to explain that because no one had, the doctor didn't break it down to me like that. He just kind of said it like, matter of factly, we just put this thing in you. You'll just chill out for the day and then tomorrow we'll see the baby. I'm thinking it's going to be kind of like a cakewalk. Another thing to keep in mind was, I had no real experience of the pain associated with childbirth because I missed that with my first. With Ezra, when I got to the hospital, um, I was dilated, not enough. I immediately got pain meds. Not, um, I didn't get epidural yet, but I did get pain medication through the night. I think I got morphine, I think. And then the next day, I immediately got the epidural, rode that wave for a while, was fine, felt nothing, was ready to push, pushed them out. So I, it was like a great plan of skipping the pain. Here, when I got there, we're coming up with the plan. The pain is present. They put in the suppository, which was excruciatingly painful. I screamed to the top of my lungs. 
immediately after they put in this suppository, the contractions hit a thousand times worse. It was the worst pain I have ever felt in my entire life. And I told my doctor during my six week checkup, I said, I know that childbirth is not going to feel like going to the spa. I'm aware of that, but I did not know it would feel that excruciatingly bad. It feels like your body has betrayed you and it is like killing you. Like it, it I can't even describe how pain, maybe like torture, maybe like someone um, putting your, your body on some sort of ramp and trying to pull it apart. It was that painful. And I was very frustrated in that moment because I am screaming I am crying in pain and everybody around me was just kind of like, do, 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 you know, just kind of like, like she's just, she's just dealing with the contractions. And I remember telling my husband, I was like, something's not right. Like, I feel like he is about to come and everybody's like, oh no, you have like hours to go. We just put it in. Liquids are shooting out of my body. involuntarily I'm over on my side every time I get a contraction it's like this pounding comes down on my vaginal area and there's just things shooting out of my body and it feels like I have to use the bathroom like I have to do number two and I'm telling my husband call the nurse I'm calling the nurse she's taking her time I'm like I need epidural right now like what's going on, like something needs to happen. It feels like he is right here. Like if I pushed, he would come out. Like I am in excruciating pain. I'm screaming, I'm crying, I'm holding on to the side of the bed rail. My back feels like it's being ripped to pieces. Horrible pain. So 30 minutes later, the person, the doctor giving the epidural comes in He puts the epidural in and I start to feel somewhat better, but I'm just like exhausted. And this isn't like an hour, okay? (laughs) It's like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. I'm starting to feel somewhat better. Right after he comes in, my doctor comes in, he checks my cervix and he's like, oh, you're 10 meters, 10 meters dilated. It's time to push. It was that short amount of time that it went from zero to a hundred and so now that I've come out of it and I think about it I kind of got mad at myself that I did not ask more questions to him in that moment about what other options did I have besides taking that suppository and what were the side effects of taking the suppository because I took it at face value of what he was communicating to me and I don't feel like I'm glad that the nurse was able to then come in the back end and to give me some insight but I still feel like it wasn't, it still wasn't enough feedback to know this is, this is a horrible feeling and it is, it's excruciating pain. And yes, I got the epidural, but I got the epidural so late. I had endured all that pain before even having something to try to remedy it. So by the time the doctor gets back, I start to push, I think within like three pushes, he comes out. And all is right in the world. (laughs) Everything kind of like subsides. 
And the best way I can describe it is like when you have to take a poop. When you have to take a really, really bad poop and your stomach just feels awful, you're just doing a dance, you just have to get to a bathroom, and then you finally do poop, it's like this relief, like, oh my God, I got it out of me. That's what it feels like. Like you finally got it out of you and you're just like, oh. <laughs> Um, So we came out crying, healthy, beautiful. Um, I do skin to skin immediately, which I didn't with Ezra. I was grateful that I did with Ellis. Um, had that time with him. The doctor gets the placenta to come out. They're pushing my stomach um, to make sure that there's no clots that are building up. And they give the baby a bath. And then I just start feeling like good. Um, the side effect of the epidural, it could have been just because I got the epidural because I got it late, was it wasn't wearing off. So my whole left side of my body, I had no feeling. And I remember they were taking me from the delivery room up to my room and they were trying to get me to, to pivot, to stand up and pivot into a bed. And I said, I can't even feel my leg. So I don't. I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> and so they um, had to like carry me and put me in the bed. And um, everything just seemed like so much better. Um, the next challenge that we faced after that was my clotting. I was starting to push out egg size or I think it was even bigger than a golf ball size clots that were coming out of me. And they don't want you to have clotting bigger than the size of an egg, but it's still alarming to push out a clot that is the size of an egg. Um, the clots would feel like, and again, TMI, the clots would feel like, it was just like weird. Like one minute you feel fine in your underwear and the next minute you feel like, is there something in my underwear? Like it was just weird. And um, so it was a lot of blood that was lost and it was something that we just had to monitor. Um, and eventually that got better. Um, but after that, Ellis was jaundiced and he was not passing the test of being able to um, go home. Because before they said that we were only gonna be in the hospital for 24 hours because of COVID-19. But because of him having such bad jaundice, we were gonna have to stay a little bit longer. So he was gonna have to do a light therapy, which is common, several parents have had to have their little one go through that, but it's still not a great feeling to have to watch them go through that. And it's basically like they have to lay in a tanning bed throughout the night for like 12 hours. And he wears these like things over his eyes and he gets wrapped in this blue light which looks so uncomfortable and it also looks hot and it's to be able to amp up him being able to um flush out all of the jaundice and get it out of him so he's going through that and that's kind of like scary and it's awful to see and he seems so uncomfortable and he's crying um, but all the nurses are great um, everybody's again suited up mask on um, all the way from guest services to cafeteria to housekeeping to the nurses to the doctor to the pediatrician and they really limited to the amount of people that were able to come into your room so I honestly didn't mind that I actually felt like it was sanitary and safe and it felt fine 
I know that might be the case, not be the case for several others, but it was fine with me. Then eventually he felt fine and we were able to go home. And that was a big relief. (laughs) So as far as postpartum recovery physically, I did have like this tugging feeling in my vaginal area when trying to get up. Um, I didn't mention, but I did have another tear that had to be sewn up after birth. And um, I was just a little bit worried about that. And my mom was there, so I had her for about three, four days because she left and came back another day. And then my husband had paternity leave for a week. So as far as supports, it was phenomenal. Um, I didn't get to have people come in and out like I anticipated, like when we talked about the blessing way. But the support that I did have from the people who were not able to physically be there, but able to support me from afar, I could not have asked for anything better. Um, My birthday was seven days from when Ellis was born. So I had a group of friends who sent me a bouquet of flowers. And another friend, later on, we had lunch. She sent lunch to my house and we were able to see each other via Zoom. And I had other people were able to send food, um, be able to send any type of supplies. What do you need for the baby? What can I drop off? Can I do any errands for you? Can I drop anything off at your doorstep? Phenomenal. Great. Um, It's just amazing how sometimes we can be very narrow-minded in our idea of support and what it looks like and not think of the broader scheme of support looks so different in so many ways. And I think that helped tremendously in comparison to my first. Having people that were there, having people to text, people to call, you know, do you want to talk? Are you okay? You're doing a great job. We're thinking about you, hoping you're doing all right. I'm just checking in on you. What do you need me to do? Can I send you anything? And then have my mom there and then have my husband there. Um, And Ellis was a really good baby. The sleep deprivation did settle in for the first month. He was only sleeping every two hours and getting up. Um, So it was like getting up at one o'clock, getting up at 2.30, getting up at 3.30, getting up at 5, and then he was up for the rest of the day. So that was a struggle. Um, Ezra did take a minute to adjust. We brought Ellis home with a toy and said, hey, your little brother brought you a toy as a gift. And um, to see if that kind of worked, I don't know necessarily if it did, because Ezra just kind of took the toy and just went off and played with it. Um, But I will say around about the third week, he was adjusted and he loved him and he was excited about him being there and he was just wanted to help. And that was a huge thing that I think helped Ezra get adjusted, getting him to hold a diaper when I changed him, um, getting him to get his boppy, getting a burp cloth, just doing whatever. And that's kind of a part of Ezra's personality. Ezra loves to be a helper. And he gets excited. He'll say, mommy, am I helping you? I'm helping you. Can I help you? Like it just soothes his soul to help. And that was really big. And then having my husband there to give him some one-on-one time and for them to do some things outside also really, really helped. And I'll talk on another episode about being able to transition your oldest when you're bringing in another baby because they're three years apart 
and it kind of varies based off of the space of time it is between each baby. Um, so all of that went well. So <laughs> I will say as far as motherhood is concerned, it's been great. It's been fantastic. I'm totally blessed. Everybody's healthy. You know, there were some hiccups with Ellis as far as um, he got some diaper rash. He had a drool rash. He has eczema. Um, the nuances of a new baby, um, adjusting to his latch with breastfeeding. That took a minute. We thought maybe he had a tongue tie because the my nipple pain was horrible. It was very, very painful to breastfeed. I would wince um, when having to get ready to put my nipple in his mouth because the pain was so bad. But eventually it went away and he adjusted. Um, then we had some reflux. He was spinning up. Then I had to change up my position. So just, you know, the normal go of the mill of everybody just adjusting, basically, and figuring out what works right. Um, but eventually, we're good. And he's great. And Ezra's great. Everything is great. The next struggle I think I had was body image. <laughs> and I don't want to seem like I'm a, a contradictory person because I'm a huge believer and women taking their time and not feeling like they have to snap back and being able to do what's right for you. You may have a baby and be happy with your body. You may have a baby and not be happy with your body, but it's not a priority to do anything about it. Um, or you may be right back at it. Um, I'm okay with whatever anyone doing what they feel like is best for them and not feeling pressured to fit society's mold. Because we see so many celebrities who want to get a tummy tuck right after they have the baby or people judging them because of how they look after the baby and I get the pressure and I felt the pressure on myself my postpartum body um was just something that I struggled with with this second time and I, I try to think about how it was with Ezra and I don't know if I can't remember if I don't know that I was in so much of a of a depressive state <laughs> that my body was the last thing on my mind. I'm pretty sure that's probably what it was. But this one was your body is just stretched out, man. Like my stomach was just like drooped and it was black and it was hairy. And <laughs> my breast was like down to my waistline and, and they were filled with milk and they're huge and nothing fit. And um, there's the pain of trying to get up because it's, it's like you're scooting and it's like you're pulling something. So just physically, I just was not happy at all. And there were a lot of times where I have to do a lot of self-talk. I would have to reel myself in because I would literally would want to have a full workout two weeks postpartum. And I learned, cause I, I used to say, I don't know why you have to wait six weeks. Like, why, why exactly do you have to wait six weeks? If you didn't have a C-section, I mean, like, I know that I'm not going to try to do any, like, hit exercises, but why can't I go for a light jog or, or why can I do, like, some sit-ups? Well, research shows that you could have trouble with your pelvic floor. Basically, you could damage your pelvic floor. And what that means is you could basically end up having where and I'm summarizing this because I'm not an expert, but this is from what I read, where the insides of your vagina could basically come out 
<laughs> or feel like they're falling out because that pelvic floor is not no longer held up, but it's dropped down. And a lot of women have trouble with um, urinating as far as holding it. So if they sneeze, cough, laugh, or just walk, they end up peeing on themselves because they don't have that pelvic floor holding it up. They can have pain during sex um, because that pelvic floor is not held up. It could just be a pain in general that they could be having. And that's why you don't wanna exercise because you're having that pressure from exercising and your vagina, uterus, that whole area has not healed up. And another thing is that I noticed because I'll be transparent and I'll be honest, I did exercise after two weeks and I should not have. And I remember at two weeks, I stopped bleeding. And then I went for, I, I exercised in the fact of, I went for a brisk walk. I had read that as long as you exercise during your pregnancy and before, it was okay to do a brisk walk. But I have to realize that my brisk walk could be someone's light jog. I'm tall, I have long legs, they stretch out. I can go fast. I'm doing hills in my neighborhood. And it was probably not really a brisk walk. Um, but I had stopped bleeding in two days after I did the brisk walk, I had vaginal pain and it felt like someone kicked me in the vagina and I started to bleed again. And when I researched it, your the wall that the placenta has attached on is trying to heal. And that's what all that blood is that's coming out after you give birth. And if you if you start to exercise or do anything that's um, exerting too much energy, it could make that go into reverse and it could not heal as it is supposed to. So that was my lesson. So I sat my tail down and chilled out and just tried to just focus on what I was eating. And that was another balance because you don't want to not eat. You can't restrict because you're breastfeeding you need to make sure that you have a balanced diet as well as get enough fats because you're trying to build up the immune system and make your baby healthy um so it was just like this go between and then also me trying to tell myself give yourself some grace you're two weeks postpartum Keisha chill out what is wrong with you um so that was just like a struggle and then I was really just kind of counting down to the six weeks and it wasn't that I wanted to look a certain way for anyone other than myself. I just did not like how I looked to me. And that was a pressure that I was putting on me and not just being able to just not have something to focus on and just exist for a while. Who cares if you have a gut? Who cares that your thighs are huge, your hips are huge? Who cares? Who cares that you don't look like yourself before? It's not to say that this is gonna be how you look for the next 10 years. This is just how you look now because you just had a baby. But that was just me being transparent and honest was a struggle. And I can't say that I'm completely out of it even now. Um, now I think I've lost, how much weight have I lost? Maybe like third, no, 20, 20 pounds I've lost, 20 something pounds. And I still have roughly between like 10 and 12 pounds to go before I'm back at my pre-pregnancy rate and I'm three months postpartum. So I would say that's pretty good. Um, but I still have those moments where I feel like it's not enough and I should do better. And um, 
I think that a lot of women struggle with that, but I do think that having friends to be supportive of you, I was transparent and I told a friend of mine how I was feeling about it. And she coached me through it. She has two of her own and just gave me a lot of positive feedback that I needed to ground myself again. And that helped a lot, but I think it's wrapping your mind around the fact that your body just won't ever look the same. It just won't, like it just will not look the same. It doesn't matter how skinny you are. It doesn't matter what your jeans look like. It just won't look the same. It may look like a resemblance as to what it used to look like, but it just won't be what it was. And being able to accept that. And you have to keep in mind, motherhood just, it's its a lot of change. Like right now, I'm three months postpartum and my edges have fallen out. I have two ball spots in the front of my head. I have thick hair and it sheds tremendously every time I wash it. And then, um, of your breast and what that has going on, your vagina and what that has going on, the weight that you gain and what that has going on. And then you have to restrict so much. So since I'm breastfeeding and to prevent any type of colic or any type of dietary issues, immediately I eliminated dairy. I don't eat any type of gas producing foods like broccoli, asparagus, um, cabbage, cauliflower. I've eliminated all of that. Can't do caffeine. So no type of um, coffee or anything like that eliminated it. And it's just a lot of restriction. So um, with all of that said, I think another feeling that I used to feel were with two things. Being able to have some sort of like life of, of my own, like outside of being a mother I had this idea that after Ellis, I was definitely gonna be working out. I was going to work hard at being back at my pre-pregnancy weight in a way of just being like healthy and fit. And I had plans of going to Miami with a girlfriend in September for Labor Day weekend and just having like a good time because for nine months I was on, you know, your whole pregnancy restriction and just working and raising a toddler and then having the baby, that whole adjustment. And so that was the plan before COVID-19. And I also had this idea of the look I wanted to have. I felt like after I had Ezra, my style kind of transitioned. I Before I had him, I felt like I was into fashion. Um, I like to wear different things and um, just kind of like be myself in an expressive way of how I dressed. But after I had Ezra, it was just about comfort. And I would love a mom jean. I love a t-shirt like it was a graphic tee. I bought my clothes too big because my breasts were huge. And I just, I felt like I had a lot of ill-fitting clothes and I didn't wear heels. And I was just about being comfortable, basically. And then I started to think back about that. And I didn't really like that about myself. I'm definitely for comfort. But I also wanted to implement the Keisha that I I had or who I was all of my life before I became a mom. 
someone who liked to wear heels, someone who liked to wear a halter, who liked to, you know, wear something that was maybe a little bit playful with style. I was voted most unique in high school because I, I liked fashion a lot. And there was a point where I even considered going into fashion. And I just wasn't like that at all with Ezra. So my plans was to have this new and improved mother look after Ellis, take a trip after Ellis, and, you know, still be able to have a social life and just have a good time. And I had all of these plans for my business. I was going to expand and start a group practice and have my conference for this year and have it bigger and better. And I had booked the guest speaker and I was really excited about what it was going to be like and getting me sponsorships. And COVID happened. And it derailed everything, honestly. And in some days, I think I was very sad about that. I felt extremely isolated. Um, my husband went back to work. Everybody went on about their lives. And I was just stuck in the house with these kids day in, day out. It was becoming extremely redundant. And there was nothing to make each day feel different. Because it wasn't like I could go to the park. It wasn't like I could go for a play date. It wasn't like we could go visit a friend. It wasn't like we could have a friend over. It was just being in the house and it felt like prison. So it was like, I'm unhappy with my body, but it wasn't like I can go to the gym. And I'm happy with the fact that life just seemed to, it was like Groundhog's Day, the movie. It was just the same thing over and over again. And I, I struggled a lot with that. And I think that now that we are further into the year, this is July now, of we're talking about COVID, my biggest frustration with corona is um, we've continued to still social distance. If I do see someone, like I saw my friend Lisa, who just had a baby, she'd been isolated through her pregnancy. She's been isolated since she had the baby this was someone that's safe. My niece has come in and she's tutoring Ezra and I had her take the COVID test before she comes in because she's 21 and she's young um, just to make sure that she was negative. And that's pretty much like the extent of our socializing. Um, people who are also social distancing, we may see, and that's still even few and far between. That's maybe like two different families that we've seen and that's it. Um, anyone who's just like out and about, super, super social, I don't go see. And I'm just waiting until all of this is over before I'll be able to see them again. And I feel like we're in a time in our, our country where Corona has now become like a political view. There's some people who don't believe in it. Some people who feel like it's a conspiracy. Some people who don't believe in the numbers. Some people who are waiting to just get it and then move on with their lives. Some people who are definitely fearful of it and has become extremely anxiety stricken because of it. And it's just all over the place with it. But where I stand with it is I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. I, I'm not going to a cookout. I'm not going to some sort of, of event um, there's been a couple of things that have come up when I thought that the numbers were going down and I considered driving by somewhere to maybe like catch up with someone 
via me sitting in my car and seeing them, but not necessarily like getting out, socializing, and meeting new people. And uh, it's, it's just tricky because everybody just thinks so differently about it. And we're not on the same page of it. And I feel like that's like the definition of America is, is not everybody being on the same page. So I don't go to the store. We do curbside pickup everything. If I have to go into the store, I think I went into CVS once. I wear a mask. Um, the kids aren't back in school. His school is open, but I don't feel ready for him to go back because they're requiring him to wear a mask. And Ezra can't even sometimes keep his shirt on all day. I don't know if he can keep a mask on all day. Um, so I, I just, I, I feel, I feel very frustrated with that because I feel like because everybody is so varied, we can't get through this. And I do hear often people say, well, I just want to just get it. You know, well, we'll just get it. And me personally, I have a mother, and I've discussed this before, who has been a cancer survivor twice. She's the only support that I have in my life right now of a consistent person coming into the house to help me. She has one lung. She has one kidney. She is over 60 years old. She turned 70 this year, actually. And I could not live with myself if I was to give her corona. She would not likely survive that. On top of that, my aunt has gotten it. She's in a nursing home. She has dementia, so she got it. Uh, My uncle works at a prison. He got it. My cousin, she works at a veteran's home. She got it. And... My uncle, when he got it and he was in the hospital, he barely survived it. And I personally don't want to be on a ventilator. I don't know how I'll react to it. I don't know if I won't have symptoms, if I will have symptoms. I don't want to have blood clots in my lungs. And my family really isn't set up right now to get it. My husband works a very demanding job. He's a manager at it. He would have to take off of work. He would have to take care of the kids. Then my mother couldn't even come to the house. I would be in the hospital. And I have a a baby who's three months old. And I have a kid. And it's just, I just, I I don't want to get it, you know? (laughs) And I want to do everything I can to not get it. And it's, it's just weird times. Awful leadership in our country. um, People doing their own things. It's spiking up. We haven't even gotten to the possibility of a second wave. There's this talks of a vaccine. I don't think anyone's going to take it. So then it still won't go away even then. And this is where we're at. And life just isn't normal. And I don't know when it ever will be. So aside from that, we have Black Lives Matter. And um, everything that's coming up with that. And that's very heavy, if not as heavy, definitely more heavy. Um, I have random emotions of seeing like protests. Like when I saw the protests that were in Los Angeles and I saw all of those people, hundreds and thousands of people marching. Um, It was just like crazy. When I look at London, I look at Paris and I look at South Africa, people protesting around the world, Australia. It's like, oh my gosh. And you just feel this this rush of support for being the race in a world 
where people just don't like you just because of how you look. Um, But then at the same time, there's two people who are murdered in your own state. Um, Someone who is just running through a neighborhood and someone who is passed out in a car. Two situations in which they're very familiar to me. My husband, when we were in college, many times he may not have been in the position to be able to drive and would have slipped it off in the car because that's what it's recommended. Never knowing that, oh, by the way, you could have possibly been killed if you've done that. Several times we've run, we're avid runners. You can be killed in your own neighborhood from doing that. And that can go as far back as Trayvon just walking home from the store and getting killed. Just being hunted. And then to think about raising two black boys of my own that I have to be able to prepare them for this world that I've decided to bring them into. And I've had many thoughts of, was it selfish of me to bring them here? How can I prepare them? How can I, how can I shelter them from this chaos? My son Ezra is so innocent. He says, oopsie, all the time. He trips up and says, oopsie, oopsie, mommy. And to think there's people out there that can conjole in their mind to think of him as a threat. And my kids are black kids. They are part West African. They have black last names. Um, They are chocolate drops, beautiful black boys. And I'm just bewildered that I can't even say bewildered, frustrated, frustrated that this is going on. And I don't know if it'll ever end. I'm, I'm super happy with the progress, um, but still frustrated with the lack of progress. That there is such thing as Brianna's Law, but Brianna's murderers are still out there. Um, that we can get rid of Aunt Jemima, we can get rid of Uncle Ben, but we have a president that can say the actual words of white power. It just, it's a roller coaster, and you have to take a break from it all. But I do think it's allowed me to evaluate friendships. Um, I had like several text messages of, how are you? I've had people who I didn't know was such an ally take off a work to protest for a week or post on their page um, where they've donated and where you can donate to, to help the cause. And then people who I've questioned or stepped back from. I could talk about that topic for hours, but I'm not um, because it definitely can have your anyone, especially minds, emotions just all over the place. But out of that, I realized if that's how I was feeling as a black woman raising black boys and feeling how everything that's going on in the world can damper the joy of bringing new life in the world and I'm a clinician, and I feel this way, I could only imagine what women who are not in the mental health field as therapists must be feeling. Women who may not have coping skills or be able to identify exactly where all these emotions are coming from or how to manage them. Because sometimes I don't even know how to manage it. We're all human, and we're all going through this. And I was grateful enough to be able to collaborate. If you hear some noise, that's Ellis. (laughs) Um, I was grateful enough to be able to collaborate with Makina Table, who is a doula. She's 
super phenomenal. Um, I was telling you about her a little bit in the last episode, I believe I did. Um, but she is a doula and we met on Instagram. I think I slid into her DM and I told her that I thought her aesthetic on her Instagram page was beautiful and we were in the same field and could we meet up? And we did at at a cute coffee shop and realized that we were only like, we lived maybe like 15 minutes from each other. Um, but follow her on Instagram. Her Instagram handle is at Flora Fauna Doula. She is just super awesome. She's a labor and postpartum doula, childbirth, sex, and period educator. And every time I have a conversation with her, I always feel like I've been enlightened about something because she has a world of experience and knowledge And she's just a a really warm, genuine person. Her website is also florafaunadoula.com. That's Flora, F-L-O-R-A, Fauna, F-A-U-N-A, doula.com. So check her out. But the two of us did an Instagram live together where we talked about how mothers who are raising black children can be able to have some coping skills to deal with all of the emotions that they're experiencing during this time and be able to stay present in motherhood. Kind of like what I was talking about when I had moments of feeling like, oh my gosh, I brought these children into this world. I feel so guilty. You know, was it selfish of me to do so or just being so angry and it takes so much away from the greater good of, of actually what it is that you're doing. And it was wonderful. We thought it was going to be a quick 20-minute conversation. It ended up being an hour. And there was so much to talk about. There were some great questions that were asked. But just to give you kind of like a synopsis of it for anybody who wasn't able to tune in, um, some things that I was able to suggest. So in one of the episodes I talked about on the podcast about Toni Morrison and the quote that she had, and I'll reread it. But she said, I never felt more free in my life until I had children. They were just the opposite of a burden. But for black women enslaved to have a child that you were responsible for, that was really yours. That was really freedom. Because they took those children. You didn't have children. You may have produced them, but they weren't yours. They could be sold and were sold. To be a mother was the unbelievable freedom. So that quote, which I had talked about a while ago stuck out to me because it kind of brought me back to being grateful for what I have and thinking about everything that our ancestors had went through and how they would want me to be able to rejoice in the fact that I get to have my children and especially raising black boys. Um, They're not something that's breeded and sold and looked at as farm equipment or even our black daughters are not something to be abused, raped, molested. Um, pieces of property and sexualized and that kind of brings me back um, thinking about how far we have come although sometimes it doesn't feel like we've gotten that far at all but that's something that I'm really grateful for and I know that my ancestors would want me to rejoice in also um, I wanted to talk about just being able to be present Being able to kind of shut off from social media and the news and just being able to enjoy all of the goodness that your children brings to you, the laughs, 
um, them being able to say silly jokes. Like Ezra always do like, mommy, 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 look at me, look at me. And he'll like hop on one leg, you know, (laughs) and in in his mind, it's like, he's done the most amazing thing on the world, which in retrospect he has, but, (laughs) but just the little small things, um, that they do that is pretty phenomenal. And then also being able to know that we have no control over what happens in the world. But we do have control over what's going on in our household and how we want to rear our children. So however we want to educate them, however we want the family culture to be, whatever we want the temperament in the household to be, how we want them to feel loved and welcomed and rejoiced and being able to build up their self-esteem and their self-worth despite what outside influences may say or do. We have a huger effect on them because we're directly linked to them. And they're a part of us. They came out of us. Being able to remember that. And then the last thing is being able to find self-care and strength within your tribe. Um, Self-care is super important. And I always try to remind any mother that I work with when they're frustrated and they're, you know, trying all the things with their kids. I always ask, how are you taking care of yourself? Because if you're not taken care of, they see your frustration. They see the irritability. They know when you're at your wit's end and they can feel that temperament and making sure that you're okay. Taking a deep breath, being able to just check out for a little bit, draw a warm bath. And when I say being able to retreat to your tribe, you have other mothers, hopefully, that you can be able to talk to that maybe relate. And if you don't, there's tons of Facebook groups. There's tons of pages where you can be able to chat amongst each other. There's Push Through Mom, (laughs) where I make posts and we can have conversations about it. Please slide into my DM and let's talk about it and not feel so alone and isolated in what you're worried about, but knowing that there are other people who feel the same sentiments as you. And allow that energy to exchange with yours and just not feel like you're just going through this by yourself and the last thing I want to say is to the mothers out there the black mothers that are in the fourth trimester like me that are trying to cope or adjust to motherhood rather it's to your second third fourth fifth or more child um, that you've added to your family and be present while watching all of this on the news. And in the midst of all of that, there's still all of these other external factors. Like if you got laid off because of COVID, if your kids are home from school, if you're trying to figure out how to feed everybody, just everything that's kind of compiling on top of just being a mother. I want you to know that I see you. I feel you. I relate to you on so many other levels of is one thing to be able to just have a baby, but it's another to have to be in this world at this time simultaneously. It's a lot. But I applaud all of the protesters that have gone out there that have hit the pavement. I applaud everybody who's made donations, who have publicize where to donate. I applaud all of the people making change to promoting voting, to going out to vote, to be at the footsteps of courthouses, to be able to advocate 
for social justice, for racial justice, for reform, all of it. And I feel like every so many years, a change happens. Some eruption occurs, the pendulum swings, and something happens. Unfortunately, civil rights movement seems to be something that's an ongoing struggle for the black race since we stepped foot in America. But I do feel like in this time of witnessing it now, the other side of seeing all of the injustices and seeing all of the senseless killings is being able to look at so much unity, Um, being able to see how black businesses are being supported, being able to see significant amounts of change. And in one instance, I can say, is this how long it had to take? (laughs) You know, what number of death did it take for it to create this? Why? Why so long? But being able to look at it from a different perspective is the time is now. And so many people are tired of being tired. And there's this quote that I like by Martin Luther King. Um, that really stuck out to me whenever I hear people talk about how they don't like protest or um, they don't understand it. He made a quote of, a riot is the language of the unheard. And that is so true because when people just get so fed up (laughs) and they feel like they're not being heard and it's frustrating, and I'm not talking about the people who are harming others and I'm not talking about the people who are using these protests as an opportunity to do sinful acts of murdering and driving into crowds and setting fires. I'm not talking about looters or any of those. I'm talking about the people who are just out here making it known that we're tired and we're frustrated and a change needs to occur. That is what I'm talking about. And I just want to say to the moms out there, that I feel you, but I also want you to be able to think that something bigger is occurring and we are creating a better life for our kids. And it's unfortunate that it has happened at this time because we want to be able to just say, welcome, I've brought you into this perfect world. But no world is perfect. But at least we live in a world that is better than our ancestors. And we're continuing to fight and to demand justice as our forefathers have. We're not sitting down. We're not standing to the side. We're not allowing ourselves to continue to be oppressed. We're still fighting. And it sucks to fight but we can see some change being created from this fight. I saw the video of LA when they were protesting in the sea of people that it was. And I asked my mom who was here during the civil rights movement. And I remember her telling me how she had protested during um, the bus boycott and doing sit-ins. And she was like, it was nothing like this when we did it. 
It was not to this caliber. It wasn't this many people. It wasn't people in Paris and Australia and South Africa. Nobody else was doing it. It was just us in the South. And to see how this is a global thing, I feel like makes me not feel as guilty. It makes me feel like I'm bringing you into a world that is so different than the people who lived before us. And I can't imagine the world that it's going to be for them when they become adults. That's my hope. That is better. Because I can see the change. And that's all that I have. <laughs> um, I, I've ranted long enough. And, and I'm not someone who can talk for like hours on it. <laughs> but um, for any mom that's going through their fourth trimester, if you're in it, if you've just gotten out of it, if you're entering it, if you're pregnant during COVID, just please hit me up, email me, DM me. How are you doing? How are you coping? How are you feeling? What are you thinking? Um, this is an interesting year and we are just in the middle of it. It is not over by far. Um, this is an election year and COVID still here. <laughs> and it um, doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. So I want to know, I want to check in with you. Please tell me, how are you doing? And if Black. anything, as always, Black. Black. keep pushing. Love you guys. Black on Black. Black. Yeah. Hey. Okay, black, 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 black on black, black, my thoughts so black, 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 I'm black, my skin is so black, I'm rocking that black on black is black. black rims on this black, black wheels in this black, black wheel with this black bitch. Black, so black on black on black on black on black, 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 black on black, black, my thoughts so black, 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 I'm black, my skin is so black, I'm rocking all black, everything is black. black rims on this black wheels black, in this black, black wheel with this black on black, 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 black on black on black on black on black on black out the roof when I run into you. Thoughts black as the dark side of the moon. Won't be no truce, won't be no truce. At your funeral in an all black suit. Couple white girls working all black too. Me and man marching on all black boots. Call up the truth, call up the